The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. It's amazing that languages like the Mayan languages of Guatemala have survived 500 years, and that speaks a lot to the resilience and determination of people. Henny Ashukilapu, Lisa Etisa. Jarrett Etisa. Hello, good day. My name is Lisa. And my name is Jarrett. And this is The Weekly Linguist. So, picking up from last week with Judy Maxwell, Jarrett, what are we talking about today? Well, if you're wondering, the language that we were just speaking was the recently revitalized language, Tunica. And we talked a little bit about it last week with Judy Maxwell. We actually had uh, so much that we had talked to Judy about that we split it up into two episodes because we can't get enough of Judy. And we actually had... Episode two, Judy Strikes Back. (laughs) Judy Strikes Back. So the beginning part, the first part one, the beginning... We talked about language change, um, language uh, uh, language diversity, diversity. But yeah, and so in this episode, we're talking about language death and revitalization. And again, Tunica is very uh, is a very appropriate uh, language to uh, to use as an example of some of the things that we talk about. Um, I hope one day there'll be a whole episode on Tunica, but it sets the stage for this episode as well. So. We began the episode by introducing ourselves in Tunica. Yes. To have people that are working to revitalize a language, that is an amazing feat in and of itself. And Judy has worked on that with multiple languages. She's done it with a lot of Mayan languages um, in her work with Tunica. And as Judy says, hope springs eternal in the human heart. And the best molasses is from Tennessee. That's right. (laughs) Yes, it is. And with that, let's jump back in with Judy. It's actually an interesting topic, and I want to stay on it for a second, because we've talked on several occasions in previous um, recordings that we've already done here. In the Philippines, there's a problem also with this word language. We, uh, they don't use idiom, but they use um, language and uh, dialect. And the the vast majority of people use this use these terms based on the, they wouldn't say it this way, but the powerful languages and then everything else is a dialect. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about um, in in class and me and you personally about where you draw the lines, distinctions between language and dialect. And it's a question that not even linguists have been able to answer very well. Political questions, geographic questions. I'm reminded of the story you told of the of the language that was split by a river. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us that story? (laughs) Uh, Well, I think you're referring to a language that at the time that the languages were um, officialized or recognized by the Guatemalan Congress, they recognized 21 Mayan languages within Guatemala. And one of them was Aguacateco. And Aguacateco is a language that's spoken in one town, which is Aguacatan. But Aguacatan is split by a river. And you have the people living to the north of that river that is the part of town in which they have the municipal government building. It has the market. It has the principal uh, schools and it has the health clinic. And then you go south of the river and there's another community down there. And in addition to that, there is actually an archeological site 
uh, that was cut by that river as well. And it, most of it is on the south side of the river. And when the Guatemalan government established the Academy of Mayan Languages of Guatemala, they gave a stipend to each language group so that they could develop teaching materials and uh, run educational programs, either via community radio or through leaflets or some other means, leaving it up to each community to decide what they wanted to do. And the people south of the river were feeling that they weren't getting any of these resources, that nothing was coming across that river to them. And so they went to the Guatemalan Congress. They didn't go to the Academy of Mayan Languages, which was an institution that was set up by the central government to deal with the Mayan languages and their development and their problems and whatever. They bypassed that completely, went directly to the Congress and said, look, we speak a different language. We have our own customs. We have our own history. We all came from the uh, pre-contact people that lived at this archaeological site. So we have this ancient history and we are a real people. And so we have a language of our own. And so they called their language Chalchiteco. And so there were, of course, no linguists in Congress, no one to say how or if these two sides of the river spoke different languages. And so very impassioned plea by the people south of the river. And they said, well, of course, we'll recognize your language. And so now there are 22 Mayan languages in Guatemala, including Chalchiteco. And of course, what's really interesting about this is now they have their own budget to develop teaching materials. But when they started writing the language down and looking at it, it looks just like Aguacateco. <laughs> Sounds just like Aguacateco. So they decided to show that they were a different language that they were going to change the W to a V. And this would show their independence. They were also included in the Academia de las Lenguas Mayas and the Mayan Language Academy because they were an officially recognized language. And one of the accomplishments, the early accomplishments of the academy was to get one writing system that would apply to all the Mayan languages so that the same sound or group of sounds, this each phoneme that was shared among the languages would be represented in the same way in the writing system. So they have a unified writing system. And not all the languages use all the available graphemes because they don't all have the same phonemic inventories. But when they do have the same phoneme, they're supposed to use the same representation. So the academy was, no, don't write it differently. Listen, it's the same. But, you know, it, exactly because of what you were saying, because it's really a question of identity and identification and that the Chalchitecos wanted and needed to be distinct, that they wanted to change the writing system. And uh, so even though... The academia sent out a team of people and had big town halls to try to convince. They sent me. They sent me out there. I gave, I, I, I gave this lovely presentation on the uh, uh, 
history of the unified alphabet and the philosophy behind it and why everybody should want to do this. And, you know, that, that wasn't the point. And I knew ahead of time that it wasn't the point, but I felt I had to uh, respond to the academia's plea to help with the unification of the Maya uh, peoples. Uh, And, you know, I, I would point out, that, you know, this, this kind of sounds funny that we're going to declare our independence by changing W to V. But, you know, American English did this, right? Noah Webster. Exactly. On exactly. When, when he did the uh, Webster's Dictionary of American English, changed the S to, a C. to yeah. Z and in all the fantasize, immortalize, finalize, and then in the Zations, right? Civilization. Not, 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 not very different. Right, but it changed. But that S to Z and the and the O U to just O. So we have a Uless honor, a Uless color. That's right. And and the Brits include you in their honor and color. Right. Uh, but Webster did the same thing. Changed the writing system without changing how things were pronounced, although, of course, now our pronunciation has differed from uh, English pronunciations. But he was declaring independence, linguistic independence. I know that we made some, in Banteano, we made some orthographic changes, but they were based on actual differences. Um, the two, two vowels together normally would have a glottal stop between them. But because... Um, Bantayanon has lost some consonants. It has longer vowels. So we're putting the two vowels because it can make a difference in the word, what we call contrastive. We're putting the two vowels and having to indicate all the other glottals. But it was because of an actual difference. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's you know, absolutely. When you've changed the phonemic system, you, you should represent that. Right. right. Well, here's the question, Judy. How does a language get down to the point where there's just one speaker? Here's the, 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 the downside to it is sometimes languages die. Sometimes they die maybe natural deaths because a group of people just happen to live in an isolated area. And for whatever reason, they die. Sometimes languages are killed in the sense that one language overtakes another language uh, for reasons we've already spoken about. Uh, you can make the argument that languages change over time enough to where a la- the same language you know, uh, uh, 600 years ago is not the language necessarily spoken today. Um, so language time can kill languages, but um, basically in the, today's society, the, the number one killer, the number one reason that languages die is power and economics, right? How does a language get to the point where there's, there's only one speaker? I guess language shift, but that's the question I'm throwing out. And I know it's a big question, but what pops into your head when you start talking about language death? How do we get there? Right. Well, I mean, we've already talked about a lot of the decisions that uh, parents make when they say they're not going to pass on the language, when they've made an economic or a political decision. You know, so in, in, Gu- in Guatemala, as you know, there was a genocidal war that one could say was fought over 500 years, but there was a very intense period from 1965 to 1995 uh, in which uh, there was uh, a targeted uh, killing of indigenous people in Guatemala. And if you spoke your language where non-Maya could hear you, they knew you were Maya and that made you a target. 
this happened in El Salvador as well with Pipil. So I did uh, field work in El Salvador in, um, in the 80s. And I went to uh, many communities in which people at first said there was nobody who would speak the language because everyone had quit speaking after <clears throat> the massacre of 1935, where government troops came through the, the indigenous villages. They lined up all of the males over 13, put them in the central squares and machine gun them all. And um, we did find people. Uh, I, I had a group of students from the Universidad Centroamericana. And uh, we did find people who still spoke the language. And when we interviewed them, every single one of them recounted what happened when the people in their village were assassinated. And then they all said, and so we haven't spoken the language since 1935. And so that's, that's a real disincentive to speak your language. So when I was there, people were just becoming confident enough that they could speak their language in public and starting to speak again. And there was even an initiative that we'd been asked to help with, reason that we were doing uh, the survey was to get enough data to be able to produce some teaching materials for them. And uh, while I was doing this survey, the civil war in El Salvador broke out. And I remember very specifically one day coming to speak to a woman that I'd been speaking to the preceding day. And I'd been speaking to her uh, in Nahuatl. I was speaking a Mexican version of it, but it was mutually intelligible. And, you know, we had been speaking then, in, I and Nawa and she and Pipil, for a couple of hours the day before. And then I came back to do the interview that was going to help us with materials. And she said, you know, Shimotali, you know, sit down, sit down. And then when I started to ask her questions, she stopped. And she said, first thing she ever said to me in Spanish, yo no hablo eso. I don't speak that. Whoa. And all of my students who had set up interviews for that day all reported that no one would speak to them. And what had happened, because a hot war had broken out again, they saw themselves as endangered by speaking their language. And so they would no longer speak it. Uh, and, you know, if you don't speak your language, that's a sure way to kill it. Judy, uh I remember, well, I've talked to you about this on several occasions, that when I was doing recordings in Bandayan, the I was three recordings in before somebody came to me and said, Jared, you know, that's not Bandayan on, on your recordings. And I didn't know at the time because I was still learning. But I went back and I said, what? And I looked at it. Sure enough, I listened to very closely. It was Cebuano. And so I started talking to uh, my friend Looper about this. And we decided that what was going on was that the Bantayanos were not, it, it, it wasn't entering into their head that I wanted Bantayano. They were, there's a, like you talked about, maybe they felt maybe a little bit stigmatized. Um, uh, so they were going to give you Cebuano. The other thing was, I thought maybe it was a possible accommodation because 
never could think to, in their mind that they would that I would understand. So maybe I would understand the Cebuano and they would speak to Cebuano. I want to write a paper on this one day because I'm not quite sure exactly what was what was driving this re- refusal to speak Bantayano on the on the recording. But I remember what we did. I would eventually get to the point where I trained Looper and then I would sit down and I'd set up the camera and set up the, the audio and I would have to walk out. So when they were looking and talking to Looper, then they, I got the, the, the videos after that were beautiful. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that's not as extreme an example as what you've given, but it's the basic idea is that there's this idea that my language for whatever reason, isn't as valuable as another. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a question of, isn't it valuable versus is it dangerous? Exactly. Well, right. Will it get me killed? Right. Right. You know, but that's an extreme example. What, what, what happens generally speaking economic questions so that um, for instance, in Bantayan, not a whole lot of economic value being able to bring, lift myself up in society, make a good living uh, speaking this Bantayano language that, that instead of Cebuano or I need to go learn Tagalog, I need to go learn Cebuano, I need to go learn English so I can get a job and feed my family. These are legitimate concerns for people. We don't deny that, right? But um, but they can definitely kill languages. All right. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I remember uh, another example of I was going down to Guatemala for the summer and um, Alicia de Berhorst, uh, who was one of the first um, – indigenous nurses trained in Guatemala, who in fact ended up marrying uh, Carol Bearhorst, who had established a clinic in uh, Chimaltenango, Boko. And um, she came, he was from New Orleans. Uh, he was a doctor at Tulane. Uh, and so she came uh, when the genocidal war got too hot and they were threatened in Guatemala, she, she and he returned to the U.S., when we were going back down to Guatemala together, she was going to visit family and I was going down to uh, work with Cachical. And uh, we were speaking, sitting together on the plane speaking Cachical. And she told me that that was the first time she had ever dared to speak her language in public outside of a Cachical only group. And we're not just talking genocide here, we're talking possible discrimination and not being able to do things like in the hospital that she was working in where all of the doctors were Latinos were non-Maya when they discovered that she was indigenous they wouldn't run the blood tests that she asked for etc cetera, etc cetera, because she was Indian you know so you're just setting yourself wow. up to be blocked from all of these access including important things like medical help for the people that you're working with. So there are very real consequences of being identified as indigenous and speaking an indigenous language. And when you view it that way, you're constantly being discriminated against. You're constantly being denied higher paying jobs. You're constantly being denied uh, education beyond third grade, et cetera, et cetera. If you set it up that way, it's amazing that languages like the Mayan languages of Guatemala have survived 500 years. And not all of them have. We have two indigenous 
Mayan languages that have uh, ceased to be spoken during that contact period. But on the other hand, we have 32, including the languages of Mexico now, we have 32 that are still spoken. And that speaks a lot to the resilience and determination of people. I'm, I'm typing questions that I want to ask you as we go along, but that you actually almost answered the one that I was fixing to ask. Why, why some survive and some don't in that particular situation? Is this just sheer force of will among a group of people? Um, Maybe a little more isolation. I, I'm just throwing ideas out. Well, isolation, isolation helps if you're by yourself and nobody yeah. is uh, trying to exact tribute from you or taking you away and forced labor. Like, you know, when I was uh, first in Guatemala, the government troops would come into indigenous towns on market days and round up all the young men and take them away on trucks to serve in the military. And they would keep them in training uh, without allowing them to see their families or their families to see them until they had indoctrinated them that it was shameful to be indigenous so that when they finally let parents come, many young men reported to me that if their mother came dressed in indigenous traje, that they were ashamed to go out and speak to their parents. So there was a huge indoctrination uh, against being indigenous. And so, you know, if you're far enough away that the government troops can't get there to round you up and then make you come and get brainwashed to be non-Indian, that's a good thing. And it is still the case today in Guatemala that people who live outside of urban centers speak the languages more fluently than people who live in the urban centers. And many of the people in the urban centers are Spanish dominant, and some are actually Spanish monolingual. So what are the reasons that some survive, maybe in, particularly in this context that you're talking about? Is it uh, just sheer force of will? Right. And, you know, as, as you say, being, being alone helps. Mm -hmm. But also, if you think about situations of oppression, not just in Guatemala, but around the world, uh, for many people, the family sphere has, is a safe space and you can speak within your household so that you can put a hegemonic language as your outward facing language and still maintain your language as an inward facing language. And for some groups, particular uh, domains are incredibly important. To, uh, so, for example, among the Chiwere, this is a classic example of the Chiwere, uh, they believe that their communication with the divine has to be done in Chiwere. So, I mean, Chiwere is now undergoing language revitalization. Groups in Oklahoma have active programs uh, to bring it back as a spoken daily language, but it was maintained as a language of religion because there was a very strong belief that if they didn't speak in their prayers in Chiwere, then they would not be listened to. They would not be granted. There would be no communication because for them, communication with the divine had to happen in Chihuahua. 
So well, if, even those that think that that might be odd, that's the same reason that Latin lasted a lot longer than it, than it, than it was actually spoken was because it was a religious language as well. And that's so what the same situation Hebrew. with Latin. It saved Hebrew, right? True that. I had another good segue here. I'm, I'm learning how to be a good podcaster. Segwaying, therefore, into speaking at home. You know that in my dissertation, there's I talk about some of the models of how to describe or how to define language vitality. How strong is a language? One of them I'm looking at. A shout out to um, to Steve Quakenbush who introduced me, but it's the sustainable use model, and they work on the um, uh, the, the they've combined some of these scales of uh, how to def- how to basically pinpoint how vital a language is, but. I remember that pretty much the number one or the primary deciding factor as to how vital a language is, is intergenerational transmission. So is the language being passed on to the kids? If it is good, if it's not, oh no, we're in trouble. That's a big part of it. So the home is basically the primary factor into whether or not a language survives. And this is one of the reasons that Cajun French in in Louisiana uh, suffered such a heavy blow is because the parents quit transmitting it because of the stigma. So this is intergenerational transmission is the, is the most important factor in maintaining a language's vitality. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, one of the problems with revitalizing languages is that quite often the burden has been put on schools to teach the language. For example, what's happening with the Tunica now, we've done, we do summer camps for the kids, we do immersions with the kids, like we have one coming up the 31st of December. We have all these experiences for the kids to speak the language. But when they go home, their parents don't speak the language, their parents don't understand them. And we've tried various ways to get parents to get involved in the language learning. We we do uh, online classes, we do podcasts, and the parents just have so much else going on just trying to uh, make a living and and keep it together for their families that they haven't been able to dedicate themselves. Even though they're interested, they haven't been able to dedicate themselves to learning the language because you know that learning a new language, even if it's your heritage language, takes a lot of work. It's, it, uh, it, it does. It, it, it's even for people that know how languages work and or have practice, it's still, you know, I, I will say this, my French and Portuguese are a lot better than my Bantayano because back when I was in my early twenties, I had a lot more time and energy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. But uh, for an example of, of a place where you can see this being used properly, like with the Osage, language revitalization. Osage is another language that now has no uh, native speakers, but they've started a language revitalization program and they are doing it through schools, but they have online classes and, and ways for people to learn. And they have a program where if the parents of a child sign up for classes, then the child and the gets the classes free and the parents get a huge discount. So this is the idea then that the parents can then also be learning the language. And then, as you say, they can move the language back to the home so that when the kid gets home and has learned something new, the parents know it too. And then they can speak. And so this will be 
bringing the language back into the home and helping to bring it, make it possible for there to be a, re, a return to intergenerational transmission. Um, Barry, Barry Ansele recently, I was communicating with him. He reminded me back in the 70s, Codafil had a bumper sticker that said, um, L'école a détruit le français, l'école doit le restaurer. Basically, the school killed French. The school should save it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I don't, um, you know, I think that was basically what Codafield was trying to do in bringing in all of the French. And there's a lot of bringing the French teachers and everything. And there's a lot of discussion that can be had about that. But we find today that a lot of the attempts to either revitalize or at least maintain languages, the responsibility we've placed that on the schools. Right. There's been a lot of, of emphasis put on schools. But, you know, for a language to really be viable, <clears throat> it has to get out of the schools, right? It has to get out and be used in everyday communication. Uh, so, you know, there's a very famous um, statement that was recorded uh, by people who were studying the attempt to bring Irish Gaelic back, Gallagher, uh, back in Ireland. And of course, there was an area of Ireland called the Gaeltach where the language was, was still a language of daily communication. But again, in the urban centers, English was the dominant language. But, you know, Ireland is an independent country now, except for one little piece. But Ireland is an independent country. The Irish is an official language of Ireland. And they teach it all the way from K all the way up through university. They teach Irish. And one of the investigators was talking, trying to figure out what was going on with the lack of, you know, you could walk down the street in Dublin and not hear a word of Gaelic. Right? So what's going on? And then ask some students who are coming out of a Gaelic language school and ask them why they were speaking English. And this kid said, oh, you mean Irish isn't just for school? So there's this idea, if, if it's just something you do in school, it's not something that you use for communication. And a place that's done much better at that in some ways is Wales, because they have set up competitions for speaking Welsh and they have Welsh soap operas on TV. You know, so this idea that I can use this in competition, I can write poetry, I can write songs, I can use this language. You know, it may not be that Welsh is going to replace English uh, if you're a stock market trader, but it will mean that you can use Welsh in your daily life. I remember somebody on my client asked me one time, well, you know, if we get this dictionary and we get this grammar and all of this, you know, that's not going to change anybody's mind to speaking it. And I, I, I reminded her, I said, well, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't go do a radio broadcast in Bantayano or you can't go write. She, she was an author. You can't write your poems and things in Bantayano. And it was like a light bulb went on in her head. Something It never crossed her mind that Bantayano was was perfectly legitimate to write literature in or poetry or things like this. And it absolutely is. But this is where we start talking about um, the domains of language as well, right? So the, the home, the workplace, among friends, 
at school. Languages have domains as well. If I remember correctly, um, I might have to edit this out if I look foolish, but the first domain to go is typically like the workplace, right? The first one to slip. Well, it depends on uh, how the, what the political and social structure is. Sometimes it's um, the political structure. So one of the first places that they were demanding in Guatemala that indigenous people give up their traditional dress as well as their language was if they were going to hold public office. So an indigenous man couldn't become mayor unless he wasn't wearing indigenous clothing and wasn't speaking at that moment in Spanish. You know, so you can have kind of legislated domains that in this domain, you're going to have to use another language. But it, as you say, it's often the workplace because often the people that control access to jobs also control the language use mm -hmm. within it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to hire a worker that they can't understand or at least can't understand uh, directions and instructions. Yeah, which, 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 let's be honest, makes sense. You know, but, you know, you're talking about the student, these people leaving the classroom and going to speak the language. You and I have talked about this before. The, the ideal situation for a language to be revitalized was uh, the situation in Israel because these people had a well-documented language, but they had economic, social, all types of motivation and impetus to, 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 to speak in Hebrew for religious reasons, like I said, economic reasons. And there was, in a sense, the backing of the world for them to do that. And so all of the factors were right there. And it was an, it was a, it's a great example of how a language can fully be reintroduced. Now you have, you know, people speaking Hebrew as their first language, but not all languages have this opportunity. So when you look at something like Tunica or, um, or even Bantayanon, which isn't quite there, how much can be accomplished um, in a situation like this? I mean, how hopeful can we be? And what are our expectations? We can be extremely hopeful. Uh, hope <laughs> we are, and we are. Hope springs eternal in the human heart. Mm -hmm. But it really, I mean, it really depends on people's desire and an identification with the language. Also remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode. Like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, and any links mentioned in this episode. As the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us five stars on iTunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. For any feedback, positive or cri critical, <laughs> write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com. Tell us what you think, what we can do better, or even suggest a topic, uh, a topic for an upcoming episode.